good morning again. We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 3. We're going to start Luke chapter 3 this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read through our text and then I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things that Herod had done, Herod also added to them, also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Father, we just come to you right now and we... We ask that you open this word up to us today, Lord, that you show us everything that you have for us to receive in this text. Lord, that you open it, that you open the eyes of our understanding, that you 
you show us Christ, that you show us your glory in your word. Lord, that you help us to come away from this with a very clear understanding of what true gospel ministry looks like. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's the name of this message is true gospel ministry. We'll just get started. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. You know, I I said this when we started in Luke, but everything about Luke's gospel is grounded in time and space. It's anchored in history. Luke was a physician, but he was a historian. And he anchored all of his gospel to universally recognizable people and places and times. You can check the facts. You can check everything. Luke's gospel is a historical gospel. We can look at some of these people. Tiberius was made co-regent by Augustus Caesar in A.D. 11, and he became the sole ruler of Rome in A.D. 14. This places John the Baptist's ministry in the time frame between A.D. 25 and A.D. 29. So we know when he was ministering in history because of Luke's gospel and the way he anchored everything in history. Um, In his will, Herod the Great had left Judea, the province of Judea. He divided the kingdom up between his sons, and he had left Judea to his first son, Archelaus, and Archelaus was terrible. He ruled so badly that the Romans had deposed him in AD 6, and they appointed their own governor. Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea that they had appointed, and he served from 26 AD to 36 AD. Herod's second son, Herod Antipas, was given the region of Galilee, and he reigned over Galilee from 4 BC to 39 AD. Philip, Herod's brother, Herod Antipas' brother and Herod's third son was given Ituria and Trachonitis, it's east of Galilee, and he ruled from 4 B.C. to 34 A.D. We don't know much about Lysanias, but Abilene, the region that he was over, was north of the other regions. And then it talks about Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it's an interesting note here, and this, this kind of also helps to cement this in history. And where it's at is the Jews had only one high priest at a time. But it says during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Annas had been deposed by the Romans. They had basically taken him, taken him down from the priesthood. The Romans had. They had told, told the Jews, I don't know what Annas was preaching or what was going on, but for some reason the Romans had deposed him. But he was still extremely... Um, and this was in 15 A.D., but he was still extremely influential in what was going on. And Caiaphas, who became the high priest, was his son-in-law. 
So it's pretty safe bet that Annas was still basically running the show through his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So this is who is in charge of the known world at this time. This bunch of people, this is the known world. This is the Roman Empire. And within that, this is all of these regions in the Middle East that um, we would look at and we would say, well, this is Israel and this is these regions around it. Um, So this is the known world that we're looking at, and these are the guys who are ruling it. And it says, the word of God came to John. And that's the whole point of these two verses. That's what it's all leading up to. It tells us all of these people who are in charge, but then it says, and then during this time when all of this was going on and all these people were at this point in history, the word of God came to John. Why is that significant? What makes that such a big deal? Let me read you a passage from Amos, the prophet. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. You understand, when the word of God came to John, it had been 400 years. 400 years of silence, of a famine of the Word of God. That's why this is significant. This point in history is significant. It's almost as like, I listened to a wonderful sermon on this text by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says it's almost as if God kind of drew back and just turned the world over to humanity for 400 years. Now, obviously, God is ruling and reigning in His providence over His creation at all times. But as far as direct interaction with people, God just kind of drew back and just left man to his own devices for 400 years. And this is the result. Well, what was going on during this 400-year period of silence from God? What's going on? I'll tell you what, I'm... My major in college was history. And as I was studying this and thinking about it, I realized that if you read about ancient history and you study about ancient history, the bulk of what your studies are going to be focused on was coming out of this 400-year period. That is the bulk of what you're going to be looking at. During this 400-year period, you've got the Etruscans followed by the Greeks followed with Alexander the Great conquering the world, and then the Romans. What you have during this 400-year period is you have the birth of Western civilization, and that's as good as it gets. That's the best that man can do. That's where they were at. And at the end of this 400-year period, the best that man could produce... Was there, and we have basically the same world system today that we had at this point. Western culture was established, and that's what we live in today is what was going on right then, at that moment in history. Um, Paul describes it this way 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a summary of the conclusion of that 400-year period of silence from God. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Actually, that verse is kind of a microcosm of this message, of this sermon. The world in its wisdom, 400 years, modern philosophy came out of this period. Political theory, everything that our culture is founded on came out of this time. And the world in its all of its wisdom. When you think about mathematics and everything that comes from the Greeks, it comes out of this time. This is the pinnacle of human achievement. And the world through its wisdom couldn't come to God. Couldn't come to God. But then, at this specific time in history that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 3, The word of the Lord came to John. I just want to assert something here. That's the way it always happens. That's the way it happened with all of... John's a prophet. If you read about all the prophets in the Old Testament, it's the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came... And now we have the word of the Lord in our hands. And what happens with a minister of the gospel is the word of the Lord comes to you. And the Holy Spirit plants this word in your heart and he opens it up to you. And he builds a fire in you to proclaim it. That's what happened with John. It's a calling. The word of the Lord came to John. It's a specific calling. It's a prophet's commission. That's what he's talking about. John was the son of Zacharias. He'd been studying the scriptures all of his life. But at this particular time, God called him. And he told him, go stand, speak. Thus saith the Lord, proclaim my message. Proclaim my word. And this is the calling of a true minister of the gospel. This is where it begins. The word of the Lord comes to you, and you can't help but proclaim it. You cannot be a gospel minister. You cannot be a preacher. You can go to seminary. You can get your Ph.D. You can study until you're blue in the face. But if you can't say with Jeremiah, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If you don't have that passion for the truth and for the souls of people, if you don't have that burning desire because you know what people need, you're probably not called to preach. You're probably not called to be a minister. This is a specific call, and it came to John at this specific point in history. Now, let's look at verse 3. 
And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is interesting, and and we're going to get into why. You know, the people loved John. The common people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all of these common people that were looked down on and despised, the have-nots, they were coming to John by the droves to be baptized. The leaders hated him. The Sanhedrin hated him. The rulers hated him. Why? Because the Jews didn't practice baptism. He came preaching baptism. You know, I grew up and I never heard this. Growing up in church and, and hearing sermons preached and hearing about John the Baptist. And nobody ever thought to point out that Jews did not baptize one another. They didn't baptize Jews. They required Gentile converts to be baptized. But if you were born a Jew, you weren't baptized. Do you know why? Because the Gentile was baptized as a symbol of being cleansed from paganism and, and turning from their idols to worship the living God and having their sins washed away. Pagans received baptism. Jews believed that they were already clean because they were born Jews. They believed they were clean because of their genetic descent. They believed they were born clean because of their circumcision. And John is coming and he's saying, you're not clean. You're not clean. He's telling them, you're no better off than these pagans, that these Gentiles that you despise, that you look down on. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what he's telling them when he tells them to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. You know, he's telling them, you must, and he was preaching to them, you must repent. Repentance doesn't save you, but I will tell you this, there is no salvation without repentance. None. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. This is Isaiah's prophecy about the forerunner. The one who comes that proclaims the Messiah. You know what? This is what a gospel preacher does. He's doing what the forerunner does here. He's proclaiming this message. It's a quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And that's what John is describing himself as. He's saying, I am the forerunner. I'm the herald. And in this capacity, John is a type. He's a shadow, a prefigure. He's a prefigure of all gospel ministers. We, those of us who preach the gospel, are a voice crying in the wilderness of this fallen world. That's what we've been called to do. And what are we crying out in this wilderness? The gospel, the word of God. That's the authority that John has. That's the authority that we have. It's the Word of God. And what happens when we cry out that Word, when we preach the Word, the Holy Spirit takes it and he applies it to the heart of God's people. 
from every nation, tribe, and tongue, from all flesh. And when the Holy Spirit applies that word to the heart of God's people, the obstacles are removed, the ravines are filled in, the crooked is made straight, spiritual blindness is lifted, and they see the salvation of God, which is Christ. That is our job. Preach Christ. So, he, John, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I don't think he took Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people. But he was directed by the Holy Spirit. Paul Washer has a quote that is, The one who loves you the most is the one who will tell you the most truth. He's the one who will tell you the most truth. When John is telling them this, he's saying, Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, when a preacher preaches, there's, there's two ideas in mind. There's a temporal judgment that's going to come to the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. They're going to be crushed. That temporal judgment is coming. There is a temporal judgment coming to all men. I don't care who you are. I don't care how healthy you are. There's coming a day when this body is going to perish. This physical body is going to perish. The wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned. We've all sinned. We're all going to die. We all sinned in Adam. We're all going to die because Adam sinned as our federal head. But not only that, we all personally sin profusely. And we're all going to perish physically for that sin. Some suffer more, some less. But this physical body deteriorates and it's subject to disease and decay and it's going to perish. There's a temporal judgment that we can proclaim is coming because of sin. That's the first thing. But there's also an eternal judgment because there's a wrath to come for all of those that trust in their own righteousness. And that's what these people that John is talking to trust in. They have sought to establish their own righteousness and trust in that rather than trust in God's provision. And he's saying, there's a wrath coming. That wrath is coming. There's a physical, temporal wrath, and then there is an eternal wrath separated from the mercy of God because you have rejected His righteousness in favor of your own. That's what he's telling them. That is the message. A true minister of the gospel is going to say those hard things. He has to. Any false prophet can tell you what you want to hear. But the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. I got a kick out of a John MacArthur quote once. He says, he quoted that verse. He said, uh, God, said or, um, God is angry with the wicked every day. Put that on your church sign and see how people like it, you know. We want to put things out there that, uh, that are like a PR campaign. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to tell people the truth because we love them. The Bible says, that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It abides on him. It's hanging over him like a hammer. And the day is coming when that hammer is going to fall. And that's what John tells them. Flee from the wrath to come. We don't need preachers to tell us smooth things. That was Israel's problem. They wanted prophets to tell them smooth things. But we don't need that. We don't need preachers who tell us what we want to hear while we slide peacefully into hell. We need preachers who love us enough to say, Wake up, you brood of vipers, repent, and flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. This is still picking on the baptism thing. You know, they, they, he was telling them they need to be baptized because they're not clean. They're no better than the Gentiles. They think they're clean because of their descent, because of their heritage, because of their nationality. He's saying, you don't bear any fruit. You're not bearing any fruit. You know, repentance is not when you say, I'm sorry, and feel remorseful. You know, little kids, sometimes they get in trouble for something. They say, oh, I'm sorry. But then they go do the same thing again. Were they really sorry? Well, they might have been sorry that you caught them or got on to them. We're the same way. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you actually change because you've been given a new heart. You've been given a new heart that loves God more than it loves that sin. That's when you change. That's repentance. And he tells them, don't, don't say, you know, we have Abraham for our father. Don't think that your heritage, your nationality, your religious affiliation is going to make you right with God. Your circumcision is not. Your water baptism is not going to make you right with God. Children of Abraham aren't those who are descended from Abraham after the flesh. That's what he's telling them. Children of Abraham, Paul's going to, going to go ahead and explain that to us. They're those who have the faith of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 6 and 7. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Well, how does God raise up stones and make them children of Abraham? I'm glad you asked. Ezekiel chapter 11. Verses 19 and 20. God says, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. 
And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. And I just thought of something as I was reading that. He said, I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, that they may. You know, in Romans 8, Paul says that the the mind set on the flesh is not subject to the law of God. A person who has not been regenerated and made new, a stone that hasn't been raised up, that hasn't had their heart of stone removed and been replaced with a heart of flesh, is not able to obey the law of God. It's not able to produce that fruit. It cannot do it. He has to do this work in us so that we're able to. But then over in, he elaborates on it more, Ezekiel does, over in chapter 36. In verses 26 and 27, the Lord says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, there's two things to observe in that that are really important. Number one, who's doing all the doing? Who's doing all the work in that? It's all God. And the number two thing is he doesn't say just so that you may be able to do my, keep my commandments and observe my ordinances, but he says you will. I will, and because I do, you will. There will be fruit produced. That's what he's saying. And then back in Luke chapter 3, verse 9, John says, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. It's like that, what I said a while ago from when I was quoting from John, Gospel of John about um, the one who does not believe in Christ. The wrath of God is abiding on him. It's like a hammer that's hanging over him. This axe is there. It's the same idea, the same theme. That axe is laid at the root. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. There's no such thing as a good or a saved or new creation tree that does not bear good fruit. It does not exist. The tree is a metaphor for a human. Every tree, every human is by nature bad and bears bad fruit in this metaphor. We won't bear good fruit until we're born again. And we're given this new nature by God. A a tree bears fruit according to its nature. It bears fruit according to its nature. And it can't help it. An apple tree doesn't decide I'm going to produce lemons. doesn't happen. It's going to bear apples. A tree only bears what is its nature to bear. 
And every tree that does not bear good fruit, because God has made it into a new creation, every tree that doesn't bear that good fruit, the axe is already there. It's going to be cut down, and it's going to be thrown into the fire. It's coming. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? What shall we do if this is true? If that axe is hanging over us, what can we do? How do we stop it from falling? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Now, these two verses here, this is a parallel with James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. It's a parallel statement. I'm going to read it to you what it says in James. Now, John is preaching repentance here. He's preaching about repentance. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, it says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, I'm going to substitute the word repentance for faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has repentance, but he bears no fruit? Can that repentance save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, repentance, if it bears no fruit, is useless. It's not really repentance. That's what he's telling them. Verse 12 says, And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, these people, they all come to John to be baptized and to express repentance from sin. That's why they're there. And, but, and they're, they're looking for a solution to their problem. And they, they ask him, well, what, what should we do now? We've been baptized. We want to repent. What do we do? John tells them to live lives that demonstrate that the repentance that they're professing is real. That it's genuine, that there's been a change, that this baptism is real. Let me, in a sense, he's telling them to keep the law. But it's different than what we think. He's telling them to keep the law, but he's telling them to do it in the sense that Paul talks about in Romans 13. And I'm going to read that to you.
Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And these people asked John, they said, well, you know, we're repenting, we're believing, we're receiving this baptism for repentance from sin. What do we do now? He says, love your neighbor. Do no, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Don't wrong your neighbors. You know, he, and he's not telling them, you notice he doesn't give them a list. He's not telling them to go out and live moral lives and you'll be saved by doing that. A lot of people read that and they'll, they'll read it and they take it out of the context of Scripture and they'll say, well, John's saying keep the law. So that's what they need to do to be saved is just go keep the law. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying check your boxes and you'll be saved. Remember something. A tree can only produce fruit according to its nature. What John is telling them is if your repentance is real, then bear fruit accordingly. And if it's not, you will bear fruit accordingly. That's what he's telling them. Verse 15 says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. You know, preaching, the reason why they're wondering about John is he's preaching with authority. He's preaching with authority. Why is he preaching with authority? I, I mentioned it earlier. Because the word of the Lord came to John. He's not preaching on his own authority. He's preaching the authority of the Word. I have no authority to tell you anything. But if I get up here and I proclaim this, this is my authority. This Word, the Word of the Lord, is the authority that we have. John is speaking with authority because he's proclaiming the Word of the Lord. And it makes people wonder. John chapter 1. And what, but what does John do whenever the people are wondering about him and they're wondering if he's the Christ? Well, if we look at John chapter 1 in verses 19 through 27, John says, This is the testimony of John, speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? They were wondering. Because he's out there preaching with authority and he's baptizing people, telling them, you're not clean. You need to repent. You can't save yourself. I said, who are you? And he confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. True gospel preaching is going to make people mad. Sometimes it's going to hurt our feelings. It's always going to challenge us. And stir us up. And it's always going to make us wonder. But we have an answer. And in verse 16 here we see that the answer is always to point to Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I challenge you to look around today at different ministries and different um, organizations. And I'm not going to be specific. I'm not doing this to, to, to run people down. But I, I'm just challenge you when you see ministries professing to be Christian, proclaiming Christianity. Um, what are they exalting? Look at them. Are they exalting Christ and pointing to Him? Or are they exalting man? I believe that you'll see when you look around in our world today, especially if you turn on Christian television, so-called Christian television, most of what you're going to see is exalting man and not pointing to Christ, at least not first and foremost. And you know why they do that? Because people flock to that by the thousands. I want to be exalted. I want to be made to feel good and lifted up, told that I'm special, not that I'm a viper. But that's not what a true gospel minister does. He exalts Christ. He shows the true nature of man, that we're fallen, that we're desperately wicked, that we're without hope and without God in the world. But Christ is glorious. We're not fit to untie his shoe. But he came to save us. You know, untie the thong of his sandals is a reference to washing feet. That's the most menial chore. And John says, I, this preacher of the gospel, he says, I'm not fit to wash his feet. He says, I baptize you with water. You know what he's saying there? He said, I can't save you. I baptize you with water. The preacher can't save anyone. All we can do is wash people with the water of the word. 
That's what we're called to do is wash you with the water of the word. God has to do the saving. When Christ comes, he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's the one who's able to create a new heart in you, to take out the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, and to light a fire of love for him in that heart that will burn forever. And that's what he does. We baptize with water. We wash you with the water of the word. Christ, when he comes, he baptizes you with fire. He gives you a new heart. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a hard verse. But first, I want you to know this is a message of love. This is a message of love that he's proclaiming here. And, you know, the the modern liberal likes to say, well, you know, Jesus is just all about love. Jesus was all about love. He never preached this hate or harshness that you guys preach. But I want you to to hear something from Luke chapter 13. Now just listen. This is Jesus. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He wasn't telling them smooth things. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse than culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he talks about trees, just like John. He says, he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, For three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year or two until I dig around it, put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. You know what he's telling them? The fact that the tower hasn't fell on you today is mercy from God. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, and God is just giving you some time to repent, and that time's going to expire. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them it's urgent. It's urgent. Unless you repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, showing that your repentance is real, you're going to perish. And not only that, but you deserve to perish. All of us do. But it's God's mercy that we still have time to repent. And in verse 17 back here in Luke 3, 
It says his winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, I don't know how many of you know what a winnowing fork is or, or the, what this process is that John's describing, but I'm going to tell you this. It's not a peaceful, pain-free process. A winnowing fork is like a pitchfork. And what these ancient wheat farmers would do is they gather in all this wheat, they pile it up on this flat surface floor, this, fl- this flat threshing floor, and when the wind is blowing... They get in there with that fork and they scoop that stuff up and throw it up in the air. And the chaff, the husks that cover the wheat is light. It's lighter than the wheat kernels. So they'll throw it up in the air and the wind blows through and it blows that chaff away. And then what's good to eat falls back down and they gather it up. It's separation. He's separating his wheat from the chaff, from the garbage. History, all of history, is the story of God separating a people to himself for his own glory. And it hurts sometimes. It's painful and it's messy. But that's what he's doing. His winnowing fork, he has it in his hand. And he's going to thoroughly clear that threshing floor. And he's going to gather his wheat into his barn, but that chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. I'm going to read you a series of, of quotes from uh, three different powerful preachers in their time. One of them was from Spurgeon was quoted as saying to someone who had just preached an entire sermon without talking about the gospel, expositing a text, but he never got to Christ, and he never got to the gospel. And Spurgeon says, no Christ in your sermon, sir. Go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching about. Martin Luther said, I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. Paul Washer says, what this world needs is preachers who preach the gospel over and over and over and over again. That's what John did. He preached the gospel to the people. And he did it over and over again. If I could preach with the eloquence of Spurgeon or the passion of Whitfield or the intellectual acumen of R.C. Sproul, or the emotional appeal of John Piper, but I preached anything but this gospel, it would mean nothing. It would be meaningless. We've been given a word to preach. And we're to obey and preach it. Well, what's going to happen when we do that? Verses 19 and 20. 
But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, you know, I was talking about earlier how this group of people that are ruling the world at this time that Luke lists, um, one commentator has said there has never been a... I'm using Martin Lloyd-Jones' language on this. One commentator said there's never been a greater group of blackguards assembled in history. All of them were, if you don't know what blackguard meant, means it's a a bad person. It's a, a crook, a thief. One lacking character. All of these guys were wicked rulers. You know, I think about that, and I think, here's the epitome here is the ultimate epitome of human culture. They had world peace. At this time, when the Word of God came to John, there was world peace. There was world peace because the Romans crushed all resistance. You weren't going to fight. You weren't going to, you were not only not going to fight against them, but you weren't going to fight against each other because they crushed that too. They didn't tolerate it. There was world peace, there was philosophy, there was education, but you have all of these. When we look around at our world today, and we think we're so advanced, but we look at our world, and we look at the governments, and we look at what's going on in our own government, and we think, man, can it get any worse? (laughs) I remember thinking at the beginning of not this presidential campaign, but the one before that and the two candidates that we had running. And I thought, is this the best we can do? Oh, my goodness. It doesn't matter which one gets elected. (laughs) We're doomed. But you know, it wasn't any different then. the, The nature of man is the same. But the epitome of men, man by his wisdom, can't come to God. God has to come to us. But this world that we live in, this world system, is going to hate us if we're faithful. It's going to. Oh, it may smile and make nice, but I promise you, we should not be surprised when there are laws made to try to restrict worship. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be surprised if they're not. It's just the the grace of God that we get to assemble like this. This world is opposed to this. It was opposed then, it's opposed now. When we speak truth to power, I don't care which side of the aisle they're on, when we tell them the truth, they're not going to like it. And a true gospel minister has to be prepared to be hated by the world. You're going to offend people. I was thinking about this the other day because I offended some people. And I was thinking, you know, I may just every time I teach and preach from now on, I may just say, you know, I believe some things you're really going to like. I believe some things you're absolutely going to hate. And I really disagree with some things that you hold dear. And I can show you in Scripture, but you're not going to like that either. But that is just the way it is for the minister of the gospel. 
In John 7, 7, Jesus told his unbelieving brothers, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. John was following in the footsteps of his master there. He told the world that his deeds were evil. He told Herod his deeds were evil, and the world doesn't like that. And when we call people to repent or perish, when we tell them, you need to be washed, you're not clean. What's wrong with me? I was born this way. I'm good enough. You have to accept me just like I am. God doesn't accept you just like you are. He changes you and makes you new. I ask a question. I'll close by asking a question. Do you love the truth? And do you love your friends and your family enough to tell them the truth, even if they don't like it? That's the calling of a minister of the gospel. It's also the calling of a Christian. We're all told to go to all the earth and proclaim the gospel to every creature, every person. And we're given an example here in John the Baptist, and and the example is not um, to try to make them like us and smooth up to them and ease into the truth over time. Well, you know, if I just tell them they're a viper, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to you if you tell them that they're awesome either. They're only going to listen if the Holy Spirit plants the Word of God in their heart and makes them new. Do you love them? Tell them the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided in Christ. And we thank you for the fire that you put in your people to preach your word, to tell people who you are, to glorify you and to to produce the fruit that your spirit brings whenever you come. Lord, I ask that you plant this word in our hearts. Make it real to us today. Help us to glorify you in our lives this week. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.